Now, one of the more human impulses, particularly when pressure comes on, is to try to oversimplify things, to make it binary, um, black or white. We've seen it in the past couple of years, particularly as we've been struck with the challenges of COVID and how do we respond as communities and as a church, um, as we've looked at politics and that's become more and more polarized and racism. And in all of those situations, one of the striking things that's happened in the public debate is that people have made them very, very binary. You're either for masks or you're against masks. Um, You know, you're either a racist or you're a wholehearted supporter of everything that Black Lives Matter do. Um, You know, you either support this political party or your whole cell have sold out and you support this one. And of course, if you pause and reflect for a moment, none of those three areas, and indeed many other areas we could list, are simple. They're all nuanced. They're all complex. Binary judgments and black and white statements will fail to do justice to the nuances and the complexities of life. Yet there is a thing when pressure comes on, that's how we tend to react. I remember when I was back at theological college, we, were, um, we had a seminar one day where someone came in to teach us on conflict resolution. They said prophetically that that would be something which you need in parochial ministry, and indeed you always need it in community. And what the lady did and her team was they set up the, um, the room um, into two camps. And she said, look, I'm going to choose an area which no one really cares about here. We're going to take the issue of pews, and we're going to make one group the pro-pew group and the other one the anti-pew group. Now, I'm really sorry. If I am treading on your particular sacred cow at the moment, you can tell me afterwards why pews are such an important or non-important issue. But anyway, I think it's fair to say... Thank you very much. Sorry, Tom, that the loop's not working. Let me put this on. Can you hear me, Tom? I think you're in. Okay. Um, Anyway, as the room was set up, I don't think any of us really cared about it. But what the lady did was she made us argue for the two positions. And she kind of turned up the heat metaphorically. Uh, She put us into a debating situation. She made us come up with some chance. And as she did it, what was fascinating was how we oversimplified the situation time after time. And the more the pressure came on, the more invested we felt in our particular side, and the less able we were to appreciate the nuances of the other side. It's just the way the human brain works under pressure. Now, I mention that because as I've been grappling with this passage this week, it's one of these passages where when I first read it, I thought, why on earth did Mark and I choose to preach on this? I have no idea what it's about. And the commentators weren't particularly helpful. I realized that one of the challenges with it is it's a messy passage. And really, that's the point. Um, If you try to read this passage thinking, well, this is David getting his just desserts for his sin, and that's the purely, you know, surface level of understanding, you won't do nuance to the passage. If you merely say, on the other hand, no, actually, David here doesn't really do anything wrong, and his sin's been forgiven. He's an innocent sufferer. You won't do justice to the passage. If you try to make out that the different characters in it are kind of pantomime baddies, you won't understand the passage. Because the whole point, I think, is that this is a mess. It's a big mess. Yes, to a degree, it's a mess of David's creation, but not only that. I'm going to go and get a glass of water just over there, and then I'm going to come back and tell you the points I've got. That's just there. I've got some water there. So as we look at this passage, we're going to look at something about our understanding of sin, then we're going to understand something about David, then something about God, and something about us as we respond. First of all, sin, the ugly mess that sin has caused. Now, let me just catch you up on what's been going on. In some senses, this is all an outworking of David's sin in taking Bathsheba. 
Remember back in 2 Samuel 12, verses 10 to 14, Nathan the prophet said these words to David, and they're prophetic as they then come fulfilled in this passage. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own, this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, your sin. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And you may remember, David then crucially repents. Um, and then David said to Nathan, uh, sorry, David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. And so we see this nuanced situation. David has repented. His sin has been taken away. But the social consequences he's still going to have to live with. And these social consequences come about in this passage as we see this prophecy fulfilled in his own life. The sword will never depart from your house. The family will divide. And so you have a son turning against a father and dethroning him. He will face calamity coming from his own household, and Absalom is the agent of that calamity. His wives will be taken from him and slept with in broad daylight, and you get this hideous episode right at the end of chapter 16 where Absalom pitches a tent on the roof of the palace and brings the concubines to him and sleeps with them, kind of as it were, in full view of Israel. And so what's happening in these verses is the outworking of David's sin, but David has repented. So it's nuanced, right? You may remember that after Absalom takes revenge into his own hands and murders Amnon for his awful rape of Tamar, Absalom flees in a kind of self-imposed exile. And you see here as well that whilst David is repentant of his sin with Bathsheba, he's still sinning, still making mistakes, because David should have acted justly in that situation. He should have protected Tamar. He didn't. He should have brought justice to bear on Amnon. He didn't. He should have brought justice to bear on Absalom. He didn't. Absalom flees. There's no decree, nothing, absolute silence from the key judicial person in the whole of the land, King David. And then after a few years, Absalom comes back to the city, but it's completely ambiguous, the situation. No decree from David. I mean, is he, is he still angry with him for his sin? Or has he forgiven for his sin? We don't know. And in that ambiguity... Absalom lets his own sin and resentment fester. And so he hatches a devious scheme to dethrone David. And in the beginning of chapter 15, he's very shrewd, very clever in what he goes about. So Absalom, chapter 15, verse 1, in the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. In other words, a show of strength. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city Gate. Now, this is important because the city gate in the ancient world was the place where justice would be dispensed. It would be where the elders would gather to dispense justice. But Absalom has got other ideas. What he wants to do is he wants to sow dissent. He wants to gossip and slander and undermine the kingship of David. So he stands at the city gate, calling to him anyone who's got a grievance, any kind of judicial review, and he flatters everybody. He says to anyone, regardless of the grievance, look, your claims are valid and proper. But he also takes the opportunity to gossip and slander against King David. There's no representative of the king here to hear you, just me with my impressive 50 men and my chariots. He's trying to win the hearts of Israel through deception, through gossip, through slander, through flattery. 
And I think we're intended to see here that Absalom is a kind of, he's a, he's a type of serpent in the garden. Just as the serpent came into the Garden of Eden and spread lies, seeking to undermine what God was doing, and just as Adam did not step up and refute those lies and deal with those lies, so David, in the garden city of Jerusalem, should step up and deal with the lies of Absalom, but he's absent. He does nothing. And so the lies take hold, the gossip and the slander starts to undermine, and soon we get this situation in verse 9, when Absalom asks if he can go to Hebron, ironically the place where David was first crowned, and Absalom's just giving himself a bit of distance as he then puts his plan into motion to stage the coup. Everyone is placed throughout the towns and cities of Israel, and at the right time, they all rise up. And naively, David says in verse 9, go in peace, but of course Absalom wants no peace. He wants to dethrone David. So what do we need to make of all of this? We've got deception, we've got gossip, we've got David abstaining from his responsibilities. It's a mess. And I think that's the point. No one comes out of this looking good. It's just a big mess. You know, there's a type of blight that can get on trees. I've had it last year on my um, bay tree outside my front house. I know, I'm really middle-aged. And um, the blight would twist the leaves so they would turn in on themselves. And if you don't take off the leaves that have become blighted, become diseased, then the whole tree will die. And so you have a normal bay tree, but then suddenly it looks all distorted and twisted up, and you have to go removing the blight. And sin is like that. Sin takes something which is good, something which is life-giving, like a tree, and it turns it in on itself. It, it twists it and distorts it. You see it here with Absalom. His bitterness twists himself up. He comes turned in on himself, nursing his grudge. You see it with David, with his lust. You know, love is a good thing. It's a life-giving tree that God has given to our communities and to our relationships. But when love becomes about lust, you have to have someone, as we saw with Amnon and Tamar. Then it becomes a diseased leaf twisted up inside itself. And if it's not removed from the community, it will destroy the community. Words are good you think of how precious a word, a benedictum, a good word can be to someone, to restore someone, to give hope, to give comfort. But they're also really powerful. And if words are used to flatter, to deceive, to gossip, to slander like Absalom does, then it, it twists language in on itself and it starts to destroy the community. And if it's not rooted out, soon the whole tree will die of the community. That's what we're seeing here. Sin is ugly and twisted, and it makes a mess of God's world. And in that situation, we're also something to see something about David, which is that David is a mixed figure. We've seen already that he's continued to make some of his mistakes in not dispensing justice, not getting involved. He seems to be on his throne, but he's not really ruling. And there's hints of these mistakes being replicated later on in the chapter as well, when we have a curious incident in chapter 16 with this guy Zeba, and Zeba comes, he's a steward of the household of Mephibosheth. We thought we would be favorable to Judith and not give her another difficult name to say. And Mephibosheth is from Saul's household. And Zeba comes with flattery, bringing a great number of gifts for David, making some claims about Mephibosheth and that he was in fact in the throne is lotted with Absalom. Claims, as it turns out, that weren't true. David didn't investigate, didn't look. 
don't know whether he was flattered by the gifts or whether he's just too tired to look into the situation properly and form a, a reasoned opinion. He just goes with the flow and backs Zeba, a mistake. Seems he hasn't fully learned his lesson. But then alongside these mistakes that David is making, there's also much in this chapter to commend David. For example, when the coup happens, David leaves Jerusalem. Now, it's really important to notice the contrast here. With Bathsheba, he sacrifices many people for the one for himself. Deeply, deeply sinful and selfish. But here, he sacrifices himself by stepping out of Jerusalem to avoid a bloody war for the sake of the many, for the sake of Israel. It's a complete reversal. We're intended to see that he's actually acting well here. And then we get the situation with Ittai the Gittite, where Ittai the Gittite pledges himself to David at a time when everyone else is deserting him. But what David says to him is remarkable. Verse 20 of chapter 15. Shall I make you wander about with us when I do not know where I'm going? Go back. Take your people with you. May the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness. It seems David is starting to think about other people again now and not just himself. And he's prayerful and dependent on the Lord. In verse 31, he prays poignantly, and we'll see this later, at the Mount of Olives for God's help. Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness, a prayer that God answers instantaneously in the person of Hushai. And he's shrewd. He sends Zadok and Hushai and a few others back to Jerusalem to be counselors to Absalom, but also to be informants. My boys were telling me over lunch how Hushai is a spy, and they were very excited about this. And he kind of is. So David is engaging his political shrewdness, and so you see lots of the old David suddenly coming back. And so what are you to make of David in this chapter? He's mixed. He's not all bad. It's not a pantomime, people. It's real life. He's certainly not all good. And I think the point is that this is a man after God's own heart, and yet he's not enough. He's flawed, he's failing, and those sins will continue to be replicated in his life because we need more than a mere human leader. We need one who is sinless. We need one who can endure under great trial and never make a mistake, who will never sell out the nation for his own sake, who will never indulge his lust, who will never give in to gossip and to slander. Only the Lord Jesus Christ, the one born of a virgin, not born into sin, the perfect human being is enough. That's the point. David is mixed. Jesus is perfect. And that brings us to the gracious plan that God has in store. Because when you look at all this mess and you go, okay, Pete, we get that David's a mixed figure, but you're thinking, but where is the hope in this passage? And maybe you're coming here today and you're thinking, where is the hope in our messed up world with the Ukraine war going on? How on earth do we find a way out of this situation? Maybe you've got a personal circumstance. You're wondering, how can you find a way out of that situation? Well, I want to show you remarkably in this passage how in great detail, a thousand years before the Lord Jesus Christ came, the Lord was working out in the midst, not in spite of, but in the very midst of the sin and the mess of it, he was working out his plan for redemption. Let me show you a few crucial ways. First, did you notice the features of David's betrayal and dethronement. And I wonder if you notice how they echo and foreshadow the way that the Lord Jesus Christ, God's true and greater king, was betrayed. Absalom stood at the gate of the city flattering people. We're told crucially, verse 5 of chapter 15, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of those he flattered, and what would he do? He would kiss them, an ancient Near Eastern way of greeting someone. In other words, 
David was betrayed by the kisses of someone close to him. Was not the Lord Jesus Christ betrayed by the kiss of someone close to him in the same way? In fact, lest you think I'm making too much of it, in the next chapter, Absalom will shame David in full view of the whole nation as he sleeps with his concubines in that tent on top of the palace. Was not the Lord Jesus Christ shamed in front of the whole nation, stripped naked, hung up on a cross for everyone to scorn and to mock? In chapter 18, Absalom will end up dying, being hung from a tree. He gets caught in the thickets of a tree by his hair, not a problem for me, and he ends up dying as a result of that. And we're told crucially in the Gospels that Judas, filled with a deep sense of regret, not repentance, regret of what he's done in betraying Jesus, dies hung from a tree. Shimei in chapter 16 verse 5 rails at and curses David, mocking him. And David responds, if he is cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? In other words, David acknowledges that the curses, the reproaches falling on him are just and right and good for his sin. But the reproaches and the curses and the mockery that fell on Jesus was not for his sin, was it? It was for our sin. He was betrayed by Judas, not for anything he did, but for our sin. He was mocked and exposed to open shame, not for his own sin, but for our sin. Secondly, David leaves the city in a reversal of the way he arrived, just as Jesus leaves the city in a reversal of the way he arrives. When David came into the city, you remember it, there was music. David himself danced, there was celebration, there was jubilation. Why? Because the ark was coming with David, the very presence of God symbolically, arriving with David, the great man of God, into the city of Jerusalem, the city of God. Well, how does David leave here? He leaves in mourning, people wailing and weeping as he goes. No dancing, just a dirge of lament. And then crucially, David says, leave the ark behind, take it back to Jerusalem. The presence of God doesn't go with him. Well, think of the Lord Jesus Christ. On Palm Sunday, as we'll remember in a few weeks' time, the people celebrated and fated him. There was dancing, there was celebration. And people celebrated the man of God coming into the city of God, symbolically bringing the presence of God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? As palm branches were laid down before him. And then in just a few days, how quickly the cheering turned to jeering. Those who worshipped and praised him as he came into Jerusalem lined up to mock him and to slander him as they shouted, crucify him, crucify him, to Pontius Pilate. The Lord Jesus Christ was rejected only a few days after he'd been fated and celebrated. And then finally, the presence of God the Father left him as he was judged on the cross. Again, not for anything he did, unlike David, but for our sin, for my sin, if I can put it so boldly, for your sin. And thirdly, did you notice the route that David took out of the city? Verse 23. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on towards the wilderness. And from there, verse 30, but David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. In other words, David goes from Jerusalem 
down into the Kidron Valley, and then he climbs up the slopes of the Mount of Olives. The night after Jesus was betrayed, that is exactly the route he took. And the early church fathers, men like Cyril of Alexandria, made a lot of this. They saw in this journey the journey that the Lord Jesus Christ would take, weeping as he went, praying in the Mount of Olives, just like David prayed in the Mount of Olives. But do you notice something really different? David prays to the Lord, a short prayer in verse 31, and immediately the Lord answers and brings about the answer of prayer with Hushai. But the Lord Jesus, the perfect one, the innocent one, he prayed time after time for the whole night in the Mount of Olives. And there was no answer. He prayed, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But heaven was silent. There was no other way. And so he prayed, not my will, but your will be done. Again, all of this, in the midst of this situation, a thousand years before the Lord Jesus Christ comes, do you see how the Lord is working in it? to set up the types and the patterns that the Lord Jesus Christ will perfectly fulfill. I remember a number of, a long time ago, I had a great-grandmother when I was growing up. She lived to the remarkable age of 98. And um, she used to sit in her front room. Um, she never went to an old people's home. She was happily able to um, live in her house until she died. And she would sit in her front room in the sunlight and she would do tapestries. And of course, I was a young boy, I think it's like age six or seven, and I had no idea what tapestries were. And one day I decided I would take an interest in it, and I went across to her doing the tapestry, and she was working on the back of the tapestry. And I looked at it, and all I could see were all of the loose ends and all of the, the threads just hanging out. And I think I rather naively said to her, Granny, I mean, what is it? I can't see any picture there. And she smiled, and she looked at me, and then she turned it over. And I could see the nearly completed picture of what she was doing. Friends, sometimes with the mess and the sin of this world, we are just like me as a foolish little boy. We cry out to the Lord and we say, Lord, loose ends. Lord, it's a, it's a mess. Lord, what are you doing? I, I can't see it. If we could only see the Lord's perspective, he, he turns it over and he says, see. See what I've been weaving. You only see the loose ends. You only see the sin. You only see the difficulty. You only see the mess. You only see the mixed up, messed up nature of the world. But in the midst of it, those very threads, those dark threads, the ones you find so difficult, they are being weaved together to weave my plan about. And you say, well, look, Pete, I'd love to believe that. You can believe that because he was doing it a thousand years before the Lord Jesus Christ comes. He was working through intricate little details like the route David would take, like the kisses of Absalom. Even in the midst of Absalom's deception, he's paving a way for our redemption. If he could do it then, he can do it now. If he can take the cross, which is the greatest hour of deception and distortion and darkness and sin, and if he can turn that to life, to salvation, to redemption. Don't you think that he can change any situation? A war in Ukraine? Yes, even that. Even that. Terrible loss of life. The mess of these last couple of years, even that. Which leads us to the heart for a response that we should copy. I don't have time to really show it to you here, but there's a great contrast between two people in this passage. Ittai the Gittite, who's a Philistine, who echoes the words of Ruth when he says to David in 15 verse 21, as surely as the Lord lives, and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King may be, 
whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. That's a response we should copy to the Lord Jesus if he's done all this for us. Heartfelt, unconditional, no ifs, no buts, obedience and commitment to Jesus. But I think we're intended to see either side of David leaving Jerusalem, the contrast with Ziba. You see, Ziba in chapter 16, he's very impressive. He comes, we're told, in verse 1, with a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 cakes of raisins, 100 cakes of figs, and a skin of wine. He makes a big hoo-ha. He makes a big show of devotion to the king. But he's not sincere. He doesn't want to follow David. He just wants to manipulate David. He just wants something from David. He wants to sell out his master so he can run things. And I think we're intended to see in this two approaches to the true and greater David. You can either be like Ittai the Gittite and you can say, Lord, because of all you've done for me, no ifs, no buts, I'll follow you wherever you call me to go. Whatever you call me to do, I will obey you, I will follow you because you've died for me. Or you can be like Ziba. Oh yeah, outwardly, it can look all good, right? Show of devotion. But inwardly, you're following Jesus for what you get from him. Lord, I'll praise you if you sort out my life, sort out my circumstances, sort out the mess. If I can see what you're doing, Lord, then I'll praise you, then I'll follow you. Lord, I'll follow you if you give me that life partner I've been longing for. Lord, I'll follow you if my career takes a turn for the better. Lord, I'll follow you if it's not going to impinge on my popularity with my friendship group. Lord, I'll follow you if. Zeba or Ittai? The only way to change that heart from the Lord I'll follow you if to Lord I'll follow you wherever you go is to look and see the Lord Jesus Christ. See him dying in your place. See him working through the mess of your sin to redeem you. See him working through all things for the good of you whom he loves very, very much. And when you see that, it breaks open your heart and you say, no ifs, no buts, no conditions, Lord, I'll follow you. I'll follow you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, how we praise you for this account of the life of King David. We praise you, Lord, that in the midst of mess, in the midst of sin, in the midst of the judgment on sin, in the midst of so much that's wrong, Lord, you are working in it to weave your good purposes and plans out. And Lord, we need to believe that today, whatever we face. And so we praise you that the Lord Jesus Christ has lived, he's died, he's risen again, and he reigns over all things. And so we pray that you would help us to be like Ittai. No ifs, no buts. Wherever you go, Lord, I will follow you. Whatever it looks like, whatever it means, whatever the cost, I will follow you. May that be the echo of our hearts, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.